This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's Word from the New Testament will be in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Mark 12, 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And then our reading of the scripture text this morning is Malachi chapter 1, Malachi 1 verses 6 to 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun... To its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say, the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to continue in our series of the Minor Prophets as we continue through the last of the 
um, minor prophets, Malachi. And just before we dive in, let's take a moment and just look to the Lord for wisdom and strength. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we come humbly admitting our need, our need to have our ears open and our hearts softened, our need to be renewed in your strength, Lord, as too often we try to do things under our own power. Lord, as we gather in this place, as we seek your face, Lord, may you be found. May your strength be known to each of us. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling in a variety of ways, Lord. I know that there are physical ailments that, that work at us. There are, there are emotional ailments that pick at us. And Lord, there's also spiritual ailments that we have. In each of those, Lord, we pray for, for healing and strength and deliverance that only you can provide. We pray, Lord, that we would look to the remedy for which you have provided in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would make much of him, that we would celebrate him, that we would recognize our need of him. Lord, use this hour to correct our vision, to enlarge our hearts to the things of God. Lord, I pray that you would impart upon us a spiritual wisdom, a wisdom of who we are and a wisdom of who you are. Lord, may we leave this place changed. May we be more in love with you. May we hunger and thirst for you. May we truly seek to be better worshipers of you. Lord, do what we cannot do ourselves. Change us. We pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit that you would speak. Lord, use my words, and Lord, I pray that the words I do say would not be just filled with, with fluff, but Lord, that you would fill them, Lord, and that you would use them to strengthen and to feed your people. Lord, protect my words that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say, but God, that I would be faithful. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. In her famous song, Respect, R-E-S, how's it go, guys? There it is. We hear Aretha say, find out what it means to me. It was originally written by Otis Redding, but the song actually became famous by Aretha Franklin. Aretha wanted respect. She cried out for respect. She cried out as a woman. She cried out as a woman of color for respect. And as she sings those words, they are now infamous, and we know them, we felt the power of them. But it's interesting that when you hear those words, find out what it means to me, it really is saying what we're hearing in our text, that God is calling for respect, a respect that is due for His name. In our text, He provides the reason why, what it does mean to Him that He should be respected. See, one of the important truths that each of us must understand this morning is this. Withholding the honor that is due to one is a sin. To withhold honor that is due to one is sin. Look at the text in verse 6. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor, God says. First thing I want you to notice about this is God doesn't say a father shouldn't be honored or a master shouldn't be honored. He actually acknowledges that they should be honored. But he asks specifically in verse 6, where is my honor? 
The truth of this is embedded in the Ten Commandments. Next is chapter 20, verse 12. We read, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long. Honor. The Apostle Paul picks up on this very same point in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Wives are to submit to their own husbands. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, Children are to obey their parents. And yet he goes yet further in 6, 5, where he says, Bond servants are to obey their masters with fear and trembling. Honor to whom honor is due. Our confession of faith talks about this when it works through what the fifth commandment is actually requiring. The Shorter Catechism helps us here. In question 64, it asks, what is required in the fifth commandment? It answers this way, the fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor, performing the duties that belong to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, and equals. Notice the preserving and the performing. There's actual involvement invested here in truly honoring one to whom honor is due. The catechism yet goes and flips it on the other side in question 65. It says, okay, then what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? Here are the words. The fifth commandment forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. The fifth commandment makes it clear that, well, it uses mom and dad as the picture that ultimately we are to give honor. We're to perform duty to those whom honor is due. And we're not to neglect it. We're not to work against it. But we're actually to perform it. If that's true about the relationships in which we live in every day with employers and parents, how much more is this true in respect to God and the honor that is to be given to Him and to Him alone? I draw you back to verse 6 where we read, A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? The Lord is crying here saying, where is my honor? The Lord is making it clear in verse 14 that he is not only a father, he's not only a master, he is a great king. He is worthy of his honor. What he really is saying is, you've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten my role and, and my position. I am a father. I am a master. I am a great king. This was the burden, or known as the word oracle there, verse 1. The oracle, the burden of God, is that he is being dishonored. And so he sends his prophet to his people to say, remember who the Lord is. Remember the honor that is due his name. So church, I ask you this morning, and I'm asking you to probe with a little bit of self-reflection, where are places that you're dishonoring those to whom honor is due? Maybe for some of the children in the room, it's your parents. Maybe you're disrespectful. Maybe you don't do the things that they ask. Maybe for some of us, it's our employers. 
We don't necessarily like our boss or those in the hierarchy. Let me ask you more specifically, in what ways are you dishonoring God this morning? Because that's really the heartbeat of our passage. In what ways are we dishonoring God? Well, Aaron, that's such a negative, negative message. Couldn't you have twisted it and made it a little bit more flowery and acceptable? Well, friend, Malachi doesn't make it very flowery. He comes to the heart of the matter. He, in a sense, holds up a mirror and says, take a look at your ugly reflection. Look how you've been robbing God. How you've been robbing God of the honor due his name. The challenge is to say, you have truly been dishonoring God in a specific area. His worship. Something that he holds very near and dear to himself. For the Lord's desire is to be worshipped. To be praised amongst men. Notice what he says here. He says, you have been dishonoring my name. In verse 6, he gives examples as he talks specifically to the priest at the end of verse 6. He says, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? He goes on to say in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Here are the questions that they ask. How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? They're all like a bunch of teenagers. They're unwilling to hear the correction from the one to whom they are to respect and to honor. What's interesting is the contrast here. Back in verse 2, the Lord stated, I have loved you. And they asked him very boldly, how have you loved us? They were accusatory against God. They were saying, God, in verse 2, you are guilty for not loving us the way we want to be loved. Now here in verse 6, when God accuses them of their disobedience, notice they're pleading their innocence. How have we polluted? How have we ultimately despised your name? Do you not hear it? The pride? The arrogance? These people are filled with self See, the real root of the problem was they didn't think high enough of God. The other aspect of that is they, had taught, they thought too highly of themselves. These people viewed themselves in a special light. After all, why shouldn't they? They were the faithful remnant who went back to the promised land. Remember, all the people were called after the 70 years of exile to go back to the promised land, but many chose to stay there in Persia. They enjoyed the customs. They enjoyed the food. They enjoyed the culture. Why leave? Why go back to the barren land, to the destroyed temple? But these individuals, they were faithful. They went back. Shouldn't they be celebrated for that? And even when they went back and they were corrected for building their own houses while neglecting the building of the temple, they humbled themselves and they got back on course and they built the temple. And here they are in our text. They're actually showing up for worship. They're presenting sacrifices. Shouldn't they be celebrated rather than corrected? How often that is our standard, our posture, our attitude. We view ourselves as holy and righteous. But the problem is our standard of comparison is wrong. Rather than comparing themselves to a holy God, they compared themselves to other fallen men. 
how often do we have the wrong standard in our lives? We look around and we judge ourselves by other people rather than by God's standard of his word, his holiness. See, that was the problem in the text. They were more worried about themselves than God. And therefore, it showed in their worship. According to verse 13, they presented blemished animals. And this was a big no-no, for in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, they were told that only the purest of animals could be presented to the Lord. But in verse 13, we're told that they bring what has been taken by violence. They bring what is lame, what is sick, and they present that as their offering to God. Here, God, take this. It's also interesting in verse 13 is the word that's used by the priest. They were wearied by this. They weren't wearied by their sin. They were wearied by the regulations. They were wearied by what God required of them. Church, just for a moment, think about the word nuisance. How many things are nuisances in your life? Think about a pesky fly that keeps bothering you or landing on your food when you're trying to enjoy a picnic. You think about the child in the next aisle who keeps screaming when you're just trying to enjoy the music as you shop. The nuisances of life. This is the very aspect of the way they believed God's law to be. A nuisance. Wearisome. Tiresome. Unnecessary. Surely God should just be happy with whatever we give him. The problem was they had a wrong view of God. They forgot that he was a loving father. After all, in verse 2, he said, I have loved you. He's been a loving master. He's been a gracious king. Delivering them, protecting them, providing for them. But all the while, they're wearied of what his requirements are. So the problem was, they had a wrong view of God, and this was seen in their worship. As they worried, as they felt that the worship of God was a nuisance and weary. Church, let me ask you, how do you view the worship of God? Is it a nuisance? To give one day in seven? Is it worrisome to wake up early on a Sunday morning when you could maybe just sleep in for a few more hours? Is it a nuisance to have to stand and sit, stand and sit, to sing songs, to hear prayers? Is it worrisome to hear sermons about our failures? See, these are challenges of our heart. How easy it is for us to just want God to be satisfied with whatever we want to give him rather than to truly honor him with what's best. See, the problem, again, was that they viewed God wrongly. They dishonored God. They, they viewed God as their equal or even less than them. They rejected his law. They despised his name. They polluted his altar. Their attitude was, what's the minimum I can give and still be in good standing? Oh, anything will do? Fine, let me give that. The bottom line is they thought more about themselves and their preferences than about their God. And this was a root problem in the very beginning when they went back to the promised land. When they were busy building beautiful homes with paneling for themselves, all the while neglecting the temple of the Lord. They were more worried about themselves than the Lord. And here again, it rears its ugly head. See, that's the problem with sin. It keeps coming up again and again in our lives. 
It needs to constantly be put to death. We're self-serving, and it is seen in our worship. Our casual attitude to the way that God should just be happy with whatever we give him. In verse 8, the Lord asks a particular question. He says, when you present blind animals and sacrifices, is it not evil? Go present that to your governor. Will he accept you for it? Will he show you favor for giving him whatever you choose to give him? If the governor won't receive it, why should God? See, church, he's really asking, am I second rate? Am I of nothing and no value in your eyes? I like what one commentator said. He said, their praise was praiseless. Yes, it's true. They went to the temple. Yes, it's true. They presented sacrifices. Surely they were doing that, but understand their praise was praiseless. Their worship was worshipless. You see the hard-heartedness in their questions. How have we despised your name? How have we polluted your altar? They weren't humble. They weren't willing to listen and be corrected. Contrast that now with the attitude that God had for them. I've loved you. I've loved you. Church, the picture of God's love for us is seen in the cross. The picture of God's love for his people is pursuing us when we rebel and we're stiff-necked and hard-hearted. What does that God deserve? Whatever we choose to give him, our leftovers, or our best portion. See, the problem was their heart. And where there's a heart problem, it'll be seen in their lack of pursuit of God. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with the lips. They say all the right things. They, they even show up to the temple and they speak about religious things. But all the while, their heart is far from me. You know what Jesus called those people? Hypocrites. How many of us this morning could Jesus say, he or she is a hypocrite? They honor me with their lips. They show up to worship, but they don't give me their best. Sinclair Ferguson says the litmus test of our relationship with God is found in our worship. You want to know where you stand with God? You want to know how much you love and adore God? Check and evaluate your worship of God. See, God must be worshipped in spirit and truth. He wants our whole heart. He wants us to be obedient and to pursue him because we love him even more than we love ourselves. So church, I ask you, what does your worship say about your relationship with God? Is there joy in singing his praises? Are you excited to hear from his word? Do you love to engage with him in prayer? Do you love the community of the saints? Do you love to present offerings and tithes to the Lord? Rather than a burden, is it a joy? What does your worship say about your relationship with God? Are we just giving God the leftovers? 
are we giving God the best and first portion? There's a big deal in the book about why this all matters. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, God says, shut the doors to the temple. Somebody shut the doors. Why? That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Notice what he's saying. I don't want your worship. I want the door to be barred. I want it to be locked. I don't want your fake worship any longer. Somebody stop it. It's not pleasing to me. It's not acceptable to me. Do you hear it? See, there was no acceptance by God to their fake worship. The dishonoring of God's name, the disregarding of his law, God would not accept their sacrifice. What's ironic is this people were supposed to honor God's name before all the nations. They were to be an example to the world. And yet all the while, rather than honoring God, they're dishonoring God by giving him second best. When I was a kid, you always fought for who was going to get right there in the jump seat. Who was going to ride shotgun? When you're out with your friends, you wanted to make sure that you yelled shotgun before anybody else because everybody else had to ride in the back. Friends, how often do we do that with God? We shove God to the back. Maybe we even leave God outside our vehicle, leave him outside of our homes. We leave him outside of our hearts. They dishonored God's name, and God would not have it. One of the interesting things about this oracle, this this prophecy, is not only is God pointing out their sin, all the while he tells them and reminds them he loves them. One of the most interesting things about this text is that he still offers hope. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What's interesting here is that he's turning away from this remnant and he's looking to the nations. Now this would have been a slap into the face to the Jews because when he uses the word nations, he's referring to the Gentiles. No longer are you going to be my, my, my special people in the sense that I'm going to be so happy that whatever you want to give me, I'll just take. No, there is going to be a people who are going to seek to please me. There will be joy in praising me. But understand this, whether you're Jew or Gentile, the door is shut and it will not be by your own hand. There's no effort you can give. The door is shut. That's bad news in many regards, except for the fact that the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the door. In John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. The key is to be a sheep. The key is that we need to be in relationship with Jesus. He needs to be our shepherd. And for those whom Jesus is the shepherd, they're welcomed and had given access to the Father. So here's the point. All who enter through him, Jesus, are acceptable. For in Jesus, we have acceptance to God. 
Jesus is the Savior, not just of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. There would be a people who would seek to make his name great, a people that would want to sing his praises, a people who want to honor his name. And so what does Jesus do? He sends out his apostles to the entire world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read, You are my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. In fact, even to the utter ends of the earth, you will go and you will make my name known. Why? Because Jesus is the door. See, no one can enter into that fold except through Jesus. Jesus is the one who offers the once-for-all sacrifice. As one commentator said, he said, we have a communion table, not an altar. And the reason we have a communion table is because there is no more sacrifices needed. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is the doorway. Jesus is the entrance. We must enter through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14 says, And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away any sin. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is our offering. Jesus is our acceptance. Jesus is the doorway into relationship with the Father. See, the bottom line is in the book of the, in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sin in them. That's why every story we read in the Bible, we read of failure. We see people messing up one after another because we are all from the lineage of Adam and Eve. And therefore, we are all born with sin. None of our own efforts are acceptable to God. He will not receive them because everything we present is broken. But Jesus is the unblemished lamb. He came, he lived, and he died so that we can be found acceptable. Church, that is the greatest news in all the Bible, amen? That is the greatest news. But you know what? It forces a question. If we truly believe that, if we truly have received that, how should it change the way we live? How should it change the way we worship? How should it change the way we give unto the Lord with all of our heart? Shouldn't it change us if we truly believe that? Church, I ask you this morning this question. The question is this, are you truly trusting? Are you truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you resting in him alone? Do you see and understand that he is the only way in which you will be received? He's the door. Are you running to Christ? If so, then honor the one to whom honor is due. There is no one more deserving of honor than our God. There is no one more deserving of honor than our God. The bottom line is this is the battle of all of our own hearts. See, we live in the time of in-between. 
when Jesus first came and when Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes again, everything will be perfect. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. But right now, there still is sin. They're still struggling and battling in our hearts. And we need to be corrected. We need to be reminded. The battle is real. And the battle is simply comes down to this. Do I truly know who God is? And do I truly understand who I am? The bottom line is, do I understand that he is the Savior and I am the sinner? If so, am I giving him the honor Do his name? Church, we are called to honor him, not with just our lips, but with our whole lives. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. You are to love God with everything. Are you? Are you? As you sit here this morning, I would ask you to probe into the inner chambers of your heart and ask, where am I holding back? What am I not giving to the Lord? What am I not truly offering to Him? In closing, I would just remind you of the missionary martyr by the name of Jim Elliot. He said these famous words a long time ago. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Why are we always holding back from the Lord when the Lord has given us everything? For in the Lord we truly have everlasting life. Are we honoring him for it? Are we loving him with all of our being? We're called to. May we do that this morning and the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from our text this morning, we pray, Lord, that we would see the fact that you are God. We are not. May we see that you have called us to honor you, not just with our lips, not with just whatever we feel like giving, but you have called us to honor you with everything. Lord, because everything we have is from you, and you are worthy. So God, I pray this morning that you've stirred in our hearts to really examine what our worship says about our love and relationship with you. God, may we pursue you, may we follow you, may we truly hunger and thirst for you. May you be our fountain of joy, and may we find all of our pleasure in seeking your face. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And God's people said... This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.